Um, This morning we're going to be reading from Mark chapter 6, verses 6 through 13. You can find that on page 932 in the Bibles under your seat. And if you don't have a Bible, uh, feel free to take this one home as our gift to you. You're not stealing from the church, I promise. Um, All right, so Mark 6, 6 through 14. And he marveled because of their unbelief, and he went about among the village teaching. And Jesus called the twelve and began to send them out two by two, and gave them authority over the unclean spirits. He charged them to take nothing for their journey except a staff, no bread, no bag, no money in their belts, but to wear sandals and to, not, and to put on two tunics. And he said to them, Whenever you enter a house, stay there until you depart from there. And if any place will not receive you and they will not listen to you, then you will leave, shake off the dust that's on your feet as a testimony against them. So they went out and proclaimed that the people should repent. And they cast out many demons and appointed them with, and anointed them with oil, many who were sick, and healed them. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. And thank you, Katie, for reading our scripture. At Bayless, we have a standard practice of preaching verse by verse through every book of the Bible as we attend them. Not that there are not benefit to doing topical sermons, because there, there are, but um, preaching expository through the verse ensures that we don't miss anything and that we don't just target the passages that we are most familiar with, most comfortable with, or are meaningful to us. It's the whole counsel of God's Word that we want to reveal, even when we have to uh, struggle with it, even when there are passages that are difficult uh, for us to wrestle with. But therein lies the the joy of God's Word and and what He will reveal for what we need. I do consider it a privilege uh, to share God's Word with you this morning, and we'll get to it. Today we're back in the Gospel of Mark. Uh, Gospel simply means good news. It refers to Jesus, and any Gospel text will cover the life and ministry of Jesus when He walked bodily on this earth, there are four Gospels in the beginning of the New Testament. Uh, Mark is an interesting character. He's an early Christian. Uh, he also goes by the name, he's also referred to in Scripture as John Mark, or sometimes just John. Uh, John being his uh, Jewish name, Marcus being his Roman surname. Both are equally used through scripture, and he's a guy that I can really identify with because he had a very rocky start to ministry. We see that he was brought along with Paul and Barnabas, his cousin, on their first missionary journey, but he left sometime in the middle of that for reasons that are not disclosed to us and went back to Jerusalem. This soured the apostle Paul on the young man, and so when he got ready for his second missionary journey, he said, "Eh, I'm not going with that guy. And Barnes says, well, yeah, you are. And Paul said, no, I'm not. And so they split, they parted ways, and God got two missionary trips for the price of one. Paul got uh, uh, Silas and went on a missionary uh, mission. Uh, Barnabas took John Mark, and they went and did elsewhere. So even in conflict, uh, God can be honored and, and glorified and his kingdom built. Uh, even though they had some rocky start, uh, John uh, Mark was, was used by God. We later in Scripture see Paul 
identifying in a letter John Mark as a fellow worker and even commends him later as useful, very useful to me for ministry. So they later reconciled, which is what all Christians should do when disagreements come up. Now the book of Mark was very likely written in Rome. We see that John Mark uses, uh, he, he explains Jewish traditions and he skips over Jesus' genealogy, which his largely Gentile audience wouldn't have meant much to. But it is the shortest of the gospel accounts, and it emphasizes Jesus' work uh, as much or maybe even more so than his teachings. But he brings special attention to Jesus' power and authority as he goes about his father's business. That's going to be important to us for, for our message today. And this message is going to run counterculture, just to let you know. Uh, we're not supposed to talk about religion in public. We're not supposed to share our faith. After all, that's a private matter. Someone will surely disagree. There will be people who get upset. But the fact is that the gospel of Jesus is a very public message. It is meant to be shared with others, and it demands a response. It may be acceptance, it may be rejection, but there will be a response to the good news of Jesus. We are only followers of Christ because someone else shared the gospel with us and we received it. There's no one born into Christianity. You don't get it by proxy and no one can do it for you. Personal decision as a response to the hearing of the gospel. So if you're here today as a, a skeptic of Christianity, or perhaps you don't know where you stand with God, then you have come to the right place. Today's message will hopefully give you a peek behind the curtain of Christianity, and hopefully you will come away with a better sense of why Jesus is our hope, why Jesus is our joy, why it is that we want to make his name much in the community, in the neighborhoods, and the households, the workplaces, the schools where we live. In Mark 6, Jesus teaches us as he taught his disciples to publicly invite others to enter the kingdom through evangelism and discipleship. Evangelism is sharing the good news. Discipleship is teaching others what Christ taught his disciples and that we have learned. And to this end, we see three topics I'd like to touch upon in this passage. The first is that we should pursue obedience over provision. Obedience over provision. We pick up in chapter 6 just after Jesus has been rejected by his hometown. Even though Jesus' teaching astonished many, the people of Nazareth would not accept him. And because human nature remains unchanged, skepticism and unbelief continue to this day 2,000 years later. In verses 7 to 9, Jesus gave his disciples authority and sent them out in pairs to perform ministry. As they have seen Jesus do, now they are directed to sally forth into the countryside and emulate their teacher. That is what Christians are called to do today, is it not? 
But it's interesting that Jesus tells his disciples not to take any provisions. That's not because he was unaware of what they would need or uncaring that they would need them, but the resources they need for the task ahead are less important than the act of stepping forward in obedience. It is a vital concept for you and I to incorporate in our daily walk with Jesus. Have you ever heard statements like these in church? When we have more money, we will do that ministry. When there are more people, we will do that ministry. I have. Such an attitude demonstrates a profound lack of trust in God. We are essentially telling God, I won't do what you command until you come through first. That's not faith. And that's not obedience. It makes our obedience contingent upon God demonstrating his power on our table rather than his. And nowhere in Scripture do we see God being inclined to bless this kind of disobedience. Here about three or four years ago, uh, as a church, many of us read this book uh, by Henry and Richard Blackaby called Flickering Lamps. About, it counts the, the, the saga of Blackaby leaving a successful church in California, going to a dying church in Canada. When he shows up, there are ten members and a for sale sign on the front lawn. Twelve years later, that little struggling church planted something like a dozen churches and started a Bible college. Not because they had a dynamic pastor, not because they had any great abundance of resources, because they did not. But as they felt God moving them, either to plant a church or start a Bible college, on their, on their faces before God, they say, Lord, we don't know where the money's coming from to do this. We don't know where the laborers are going to come to do this. But Lord, we feel you're prompting for us to do this, so we're going to step forward and trust. We're going to rely upon you to supply what we need and what we need, when we need it. And that's what they did. So obedience comes before. God blesses our obedience with the provision. He doesn't stockpile for us. And when we see that and put that in our comfort level of what we can see and touch, but rather we want to rely upon him. So where are you at in obedience in this regard? Has God invited you to help another person? but you pass it off as someone else's responsibility. Has God presented a financial decision you need to make or a relationship you need to invest in, but you've determined there's not enough of you to go around? Do you have a neighbor who desperately needs the hope found in Jesus, yet you remain silent? Are you waiting for more time, more money, more energy, more inspiration to materialize before you pursue the ministry which God had planned for you. Ephesians 2.10 tells us, for we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Your ministry, God has already decided what that's going to be. The question is, if you said, God, send me. Give me what I need when I need it. I'm ready to go to work. 
I am convinced that the reason so many churches suffer from ineffectiveness is we have so little obedient work for God to bless. But when we prove ourselves faithful, we can rely upon God to provide what is required out of his bountiful grace for what he has tasked us to do. We are not judged for our lack. We judge what do we do with what he's given us. Verses 7-9 also illustrates the importance of ministry partnerships. There's no such thing as Lone Ranger Christians. Even Lone Ranger had Tonto. Jesus did not send his disciples out solo, but in pairs. And there are several significant advantages to developing, to plugging into this kind of gospel-centered community. First of which is, a partner lends strength. Ecclesiastes says, For if they fall, one will lift up his fellow. But woe to him who is alone when he falls, and has not another to lift him up. Not only do partners protect each other from danger, burnout, and resentment, but they also provide companionship, encouragement along the way in difficult circumstances. What a comfort it is to know that we are not alone in ministry. Secondly, a partner bestows credibility. Deuteronomy 19.15 requires that two or three witnesses convict a person of a crime. So that testimony does not rely upon a single witness. For that same reason, two Christian witnesses have more credibility than one. They may each have different stories where they were when God revealed himself to them, the circumstances in which they were rescued from the consequence of their sin. But it's two sides of the same coin. It's two stories being told with the same God behind each one. And this is an important consideration as we go out to bear witnesses, bear witness in a world of skeptics. Third, a partner provides accountability. Here's a newsflash. We're all sinners and remain sinners, even if we join the church, even if we were baptized, if we've accepted with sincere faith that Christ our Savior, we still are born with a sin nature that we will struggle with until we get to heaven. If you believe that you're no longer susceptible to your sin nature, then we need to have a talk after service. But we are less likely to yield to temptation when accompanied by a partner. As Christians, we should endeavor to have in our lives a trusted brother or sister to whom we have given permission to ask us the hard question about our struggles with sin. This is not to judge because we're all guilty, but to foster within each other a more diligent pursuit of personal holiness. Because we cannot do it on our own, we need to rely upon Christ for that strength. But accountability is very important in keeping that pursuit of personal holiness, and our witness on par with what we need to do for the task that Christ has called us to do. There was a former co-worker of mine years ago who had a little sign in his cubicle that read, I'm not completely useless. I can always be used as a bad example. 
as an unbeliever. I used to snicker at the hypocrisy that I observed in some of the professed Christians I knew. I was lost, but I was not stupid. Neither are your neighbors or mine. They can see our lives and say, is that how a Christian is supposed to behave? Is that how a Christian talks? We're never off the clock. And rather than being a burden, it should be a joy that Christ will strengthen us so that we can live not the perfect life, but a forgiven life. That we are quick to confess our sin. We're quick to repent. My greatest fear has always been that I would become the hypocrite that I once mocked. I would not want to be a stumbling block, an obstacle to someone coming to know Jesus. I burned at the thought that there would be a, a skeptic who would cite my conduct as the reason they could not trust the Christ that I proclaim. So it's important that we are real, that we are honest with ourselves and before God. He already knows. We're not telling him anything that he does not already know. So we're quick to repent so that our relationship is not hindered by a sin that I'm hanging on to or trying to keep hidden. We do not want our witness for Jesus to be blemished. We want the gospel message to reveal instead a changed life. Not only does our passage today show that we should pursue obedience over provision, but also that we should emphasize the message over the messenger. In verse 10, we see that Jesus instructs his disciples that when they enter a house, to remain there for the length of their stay, possibly to prevent the disciples from perhaps becoming distracted by pursuing greater personal comforts and better accommodations. We're not told specifically. And truth be told, it's the lack of comfort that is what often defers, deters many believers from serving in ministry in some capacity. But in spite of the hardships, God blesses the efforts of those who step out of their comfort zone, who trust in him and take a risk for the glory of Christ. Staying in one house also demonstrated a mark of genuine faith on part of the host, that the gospel message was received and the new believer responded with a changed heart by an offer of hospitality to support the work of the disciples. And this is also a good application regarding church membership. Unfortunately, Our culture today treats churches more like a consumer product. People bounce around looking for better stuff, bigger programs, more dynamic pastors, greater musical experiences. Too often our question is, what can I get out of it? Instead of, is this where God wants me? We should all be in the place of worship and in among a congregation where God has called us to worship alongside and serve alongside. Amen? The church is not a consumer product. It's not a, a warehouse or a museum where Christianity is, is showcased and kept behind uh, velvet ropes and glass cabinets. 
In fact, it is a factory where raw material comes in, completely useless, and God crafts it and shapes it and equips it to a disciple that leaves these walls, goes out and ministers to his community, his workplace, his schools, his neighborhoods, and his family. That's what the church is, a collection of people that's busy about the purposes of God, the mission of Christ. So now in verse 11, we see Jesus instructing his disciples to come to a place, when they come to a place, that will not receive them. Jews returning home from Gentile lands would shake off pagan dust as a gesture of, of cleansing and contempt. But that's what Jesus means here. But it would have been a concept that his Jewish disciples would have understood. That when a disciple shakes off the dust of an unreceptive town, it's as much a call for repentance to a hard-hearted people as it is an affirmation of God's judgment for continuing in their unbelief. The, free, the gesture frees the disciples to move on to more fertile fields where hearts are open, minds are receptive to the gospel. It is important to note that the disciples' responsibility is to the faithful proclamation of the gospel, not the successful conversion of the audience. I think that bears repeating. Your responsibility and mine is the faithful proclamation of the gospel, not the successful conversion of the people that we witness to. That is the work of the Holy Spirit. I believe it was uh, Dwight L. Moody who once encountered a, a, a drunken man uh, in, in a very disheveled state and in poor fortunes on a train. And the man approached L. Moody and said, I'm one of your converts. To which D.L. Moody looked at the man and says, you must be one of mine because surely you are not the Lord's. We want to be sure that it is the message of Christ and not us ourselves. Although he can use our, our, our background and our testimony, but the saving is him. We are just the messenger. God wants you and I to have compassion on those who do not yet know Christ. We used to be where they are now. And it's only by the mercy and grace of God that we've been rescued from our death sentence. But God used a human agent, another believer, to step out of their comfort zone to share that with you and me. We want to emulate that. That's what Jesus called for his disciples to do 2,000 years ago. And that's what he calls for us to do today. And we are motivated by our love for Jesus that we should dedicate ourselves fully to see his good news spread to every corner of the earth or wherever God takes us so that everyone would have the option, the opportunity to accept that free gift of salvation and thus be reconciled to God. We are mere beggars showing other beggars where to find bread. And it's a hard reality that not everyone will choose to follow Jesus. Jesus is a saving, we're just the messengers. When the gospel falls on deaf ears, it is Jesus who is rejected, not you. The wind for us, as obedient disciples, 
is to boldly testify Christ as Savior and leave the outcome to Him. We must diligently pursue those whom God has laid upon our hearts and put in our paths, giving most attention to those who are receptive to the good news of salvation, but never counting anyone out. Because God is long-suffering, and part of His mercy is giving people more time. We must, uh, when someone responds positively to the gospel, we will rejoice in a new brother or sister. When someone disregards the gospel, we will rejoice that our Lord has been faithfully proclaimed among men, and we will continue to pray for the day where that person finally confesses his sin and is reconciled with God. Finally, not only does our passage today encourage us to pursue obedience over provision and emphasize the message over the messenger, but we're also to respond with action over fear. While there are many good things Christians can do to minister to their neighbors, those are not always the best thing. One activity that every believer must not neglect is preaching repentance. Bible studies we leave, vacation Bible schools we attend or send our kids to are good things, but they're not the best things. Those things in and of themselves do not save people. What saves the people is the proclamation of the gospel which is a call to repentance. Loving someone enough, tell them, here's what your condition is. And here's the solution. Repentance is the decision to turn away from our sinful ways and turn toward Christ for the forgiveness of our sins. I can't do it on my own. I can't earn it. I can't make up for it. Only He can take care of that. And repentance is only possible by the grace of God through faith in Jesus Christ. There is a not so modern philosophy that all paths live, lead to God, all religions are the same. And they are partially true that every, all paths lead to God, but not with the same results. Christianity is exclusive among world religions in that it is not up to us to make ourselves better, to improve ourselves, to receive, receive a, a higher level, attain a higher level of consciousness. The only thing we contribute to our salvation is the sin that re- makes salvation necessary. Christ alone does it. Spurgeon once noted, the gospel command is, go ye into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. But it is so little conveyed that one would imagine it ran thus. Go into your little place of worship and preach the gospel to the few creatures who will come inside. It was true in Spurgeon's day. It's true for ours today. What is it that keeps you and me from taking action as Jesus has commanded us? Evangelist Bill Fay suggests that it is fear that holds us back. That should not be. After all, in 2 Timothy chapter 1, verse 7, Paul writes, For God gave us a spirit not of fear, but of power and love and self-control. They identify six common fears 
that stop us from sharing our faith. Perhaps one of these describes you. First, I'm fear of being rejected. There are few pains stronger than rejection. Even the Apostle Paul felt it as he wrote in 1 Corinthians 2.3, And I was with you in weakness and in fear and in much trembling. And yet Paul made a difference because he went forth to boldly proclaim the gospel in spite of his fear. As we noted earlier, people reject the gospel. They do not reject you or I. We do not receive the credit for the salvation, nor do we get the blame for rejection. So the pressure of fear for rejection, we hand that to Christ. Second, I'm afraid what my friends will think. If this is why you do not share the gospel, I have a question for you. What do you question? What do your friends think of you now? Have you built a relationship of respect and trust? It is true that persecution might come when you share your faith. Jesus promised us nothing less when he said in John 15, 20, if they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. But that is not all bad news. Matthew 5, 10 to 12, promises God's favor when we are persecuted. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake. For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you, falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. How many of your friends and mine know that we are Christians, but they don't understand the gospel? Quite frankly, the reason our friends do not understand the gospel is that you and I have not taken the time to explain it to them. Number three, I'm afraid I'll get into trouble at work if I share with my coworkers. And some workplaces frown upon sharing faith on the job. This may make the gospel presentation more challenging, but it can still be done. Laying the foundation of a good relationship is key. Pray for an opportunity to share the gospel after work. Once your coworkers come to understand that you genuinely care for them, you can look for ways where you can minister to them when difficult situations arise in their lives, and they will, and they will remember you. And words of, of comfort and encouragement you gave them before Offer to pray for them and with them. Be a blessing to them in their time of need. That represents Christ in the workplace. Number four, I'm afraid I don't know enough. Everyone here today who professed Jesus as Savior has heard the gospel at least once in your life. Amen? You don't need to attend a Bible study. You don't need to join the Gideons. You don't need to earn a seminary degree to pass along what you've been taught. Surprisingly, it is often not the new Christian who has this fear. 
They're on fire. They're eager to share their faith. They have friends and family members say, hey, I need to tell you what's going on in my life. What Jesus has done for me. Rather, is often the person who's been a Christian for several years who loses their confidence. Take note of Jesus' disciples in our passage. They probably had less than two years of traveling with Jesus before he sent them out. And in addition to preaching repentance, they were also casting out demons, healing the sick. But it was under Jesus' authority and in his name. That forms a basis of everything that we do. And those disciples were not yet indwelt by the Holy Spirit, as you and I are. Zechariah 4.6 says this, Not by might nor by power, but my spirit, says the Lord of hosts. So how much more, how much better equipped are we today than Jesus' disciples were? What is our excuse? Number five. I'm afraid of losing my friends and relatives. This is a very real fear. And this did happen to the Jews in the, the first century. Families can be torn apart by the gospel. We are not guaranteed a happy ending when we share our faith with loved ones. Jesus knew this. When he said in Luke 12, verses 51 and 52, Do you think that I have come to give peace on earth? No, I tell you, but rather division. For from now on, in one house there will be five divided, three against two, and two against three. That's not God's intention that happens, but that is a reality that will happen in some places. That is a fear. But when we surrender our lives to Jesus, everything is laid at the throne. We trust him for everything, even our relationships, and it may well cost us certain relationships. But if we truly die to ourselves to follow Christ, then yes, we re risk leaving our loved ones behind. That doesn't mean we don't pray for them, that we don't look for opportunities to witness to them. But as much as it depends upon you, keep those lines of communication open. Work diligently to maintain healthy relationships in God's time and by his will. Perhaps hearts will be softened and you'll have the opportunity to lead your friends and family to the saving knowledge of Christ. And there's an amen. Finally, I'm afraid I'll say something wrong. If this is your fear, consider the prophet Jonah. His was not an evangelical message, but it was one of judgment and repentance. In the Old Testament, God told Jonah to go to the wicked city of Nineveh and speak judgment against it. Jonah did not want them to be saved. They were enemies of Israel. So he fled in the opposite direction. And you know the story, perhaps. Uh, God brought him back in the belly of a great fish. So God is going to see his plan done. We can get with the program, or we can spend a lot of time in the belly of a fish, as Jonah learned. When Jonah finally responded with reluctant obedience, which is still disobedience, by the way. Delayed obedience is immediate disobedience. And partial obedience 
is complete disobedience. So we can't give Jonah too much credit. He did it because of his best interest, but he wasn't doing it willingly or, or because of heart in the right place. Okay. His pronouncement to the city of Nineveh in Jonah 3, 4 was, Yet 40 days and Nineveh shall be overthrown. Period. He is from, if he was from Texas, it had been, All y'all gonna die. Now these people have no covenant with God. They are not children of Abraham. They are the complete opposite. But watch what happens next. In spite of Jonah's bad attitude and harsh delivery, God touched the hearts of the Nevites, and the people believed judgment was upon them. Even the king was grieved. And Jonah 3, verses 8 and 9, tells us that the king issued a proclamation for fasting and putting on sackcloth for all people, all the animals, and ordered, let them call out mightily to God. Now remember, this is not their God. They don't worship God. But their hearts have been impressed that, that things just got real. Let everyone turn from his evil way. That's repentance. And the violence that it is, is in his hands. Who knows? God may turn and relent and turn from his fierce anger so that we may not perish. And how did God respond? In Jonah 3.10, tells us that when God saw what they did, how they turned from their evil way, God relented of the disaster that he, he said he would do to them, and he did not do it. Wow. So here's a prophet who didn't want to go, who didn't want the Ninevites to be saved, who didn't even preach repentance, and was later shown to be angry that God showed compassion after the city turned from its evil way. And yet, God still worked out the repentance and the salvation of Nineveh in that day. So you cannot mess up a gospel presentation because it is God who powers it. Amen? Even if you and I share the gospel awkwardly, and I have, unlovingly, with poor tact or lousy timing, our Heavenly Father can use that. What he won't use is our silence. This is where you are today. I have great news for you. There are plenty of, of tools and, and, and methods for sharing the gospel clearly and effectively. However, the key element is not in the method. It is in the message. That Jesus died to pay for the sins of mankind. And by accepting his death for the forgiveness of your sins, you can be restored to a right relationship with God. Feel free to uh, contact Pastor Evan, John, or myself after the service or later this week if you'd like to learn more about how can I share my faith to those whom God has put into my life, into my neighborhood, into my families, my workplaces, my neighborhoods. And we'll show you how you can clearly communicate the gospel from God's word. So in conclusion, to be faithful followers of Christ, we should seek obedience over provision. Doing what God calls us to do and rely upon him to fulfill our needs. We should lift up the message over the messenger, understanding it is the gospel that is accepted 
not us. And we should respond to the gospel with action rather than fear. Taking responsibility for disciple making and trusting Jesus for the results. The good news of Jesus is our sole message and our sole motivation. It is what compels us to complicate our lives with messy, broken people who are just like us. In Christ alone do we find our true identity, the place of ultimate safety, and a sense of belonging that transcends this life into the next. Let's have a word of prayer. Thank you, Father, Lord. We thank you for your word that you have written for all people for all time, Lord. It is your love letter to us. Lord, let us rely upon it to learn more about Christ and his character. Lord, how we are to become the disciples who make disciples. Lord, that we will not be obstacles to others coming to know Christ, but Lord, we would reflect accurately the character, the nature that Christ wants to work through us. Lord, I thank you for each person here. Lord, I thank you that you are working on us even now, revealing Christ to us. And Lord, I ask that you would help conform our lives to what Scripture has revealed to us today. And these things we pray to in Jesus' name. Amen.